Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast, where host and astronaut Charlie Camarda and his intriguing variety of guests share their visions for transforming the way we work, learn, and solve some of the most daunting challenges on Earth and throughout the solar system. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Well, good afternoon. Hello, my name is Charlie Kamada. I'm an astronaut. I flew on the return flight mission following the Columbia accident. And I will be your host today for Leading Edge Discovery Podcast, the series with ITSP Magazine, where we're talking to leaders from around the world in STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, in particular research. We've been focusing on aerospace uh, for these first seven episodes. Uh, we talk to leaders from around the world and we're looking at trying to solve complex problems by putting the right people together and using innovation to solve these unbelievable what i call epic challenges and we are honored today to have a, a great friend of mine that i've known for a very long time um, working in the field of hypersonics uh, dr bart bartholomew from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, retired. He was a director of research there. Uh, he was the director of one of the, if not the most epic hypersonic programs, the National Aerospace Program in the mid eighties. And we're gonna talk about that. And he asked he retired from Wright-Pat. He formed, he was a founding uh, partner and, and president CEO of the Wright Brothers Institute, an amazing organization. We're gonna talk a little bit about that. Him and a few senior research buddies decided that they wanted to keep innovation within the Air Force and how they were gonna go about doing it. Bart, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time and your busy, very busy schedule to meet with us today. Um, and I want I want you to go ahead and introduce yourself. And we usually like to start the program by having the folks talk a little bit about what led them down this path, because we have very similar passions both in education and in hypersonics. So Bart, you take it away and uh, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Charlie. And yeah, uh, there was a definite uh, beginning to my interest. I was a student at uh, MIT. I was getting my bachelor's degree in chemical engineering and uh, followed that with a master's degree in nuclear physics. And that was in 1963. And 1963 was a very important year because that's the year that President Kennedy was assassinated. But prior to that, I had heard President Kennedy say, we're going to the moon. We're going to the moon before this decade. And, you know, to any sort of MIT engineer, you know, a physicist geek, I thought, oh, my gosh, I got to be part of this program. So I, uh, I went to the Air Force. I enlisted in the Air Force, finally got my Ph.D., and worked for 35 years actually in Toto uh, at the Air Force uh, Research Laboratory, which is based at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, the home of the Wright brothers, of course, but also the largest research and development base in the country. 
Well, I didn't start, of course, in the uh, in the in the rocket area. I started as a little aide, uh, second lieutenant to Dr. Hans von Oheim, who was the inventor of the jet engine, had just come over to Wright Pat after the World War II. And uh, I remember Dr. von Oheim was a, such a wonderful person. Uh, and he says, OK, Bart, what are we going to do? And I says, oh, I don't know. What do you say? He says, let's go to the moon. I went, oh, let's go to the moon, Hans. That's what President Kennedy wants. And so we both designed a nuclear rocket, a nuclear rocket. And the fun thing about that is we could have built the darn thing in the four years that we were there. But nuclear, you know, anything, especially if you launch it into space, is, is a little bit scary. So uh, they put us on hold. But quite frankly, that bold idea that Hans had uh, would have probably got us to the moon in half the time and probably got us to the Mar uh, to Mars in, in, you know, before today. So that was my kind of like energy. And I thought, oh, gosh, I, I'm going to do that. Well, it didn't happen. Hey, right. Hey, now. Bart. Hey, Bart. I remember hearing about this. And did we come pretty close to someone actually trying to actually develop a prototype and fly it on, over land? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we did. Uh, it wasn't me and Hans, but it was uh, some folks from NASA, I think, and some folks from the uh, the uh, Department of Energy. And uh, it, it could have, and it wasn't really dangerous, honestly. You know, we could have contained any kind of effluent, you know, that would have been dangerous. But that was about the time when nuclear energy got a bad rap, you know, you know, it, there was all that stuff going on. And, you know, Hans and I were so excited to do this. And, you know, I thought, oh, as a kid, wow, let's go do that. Well, unfortunately, it took me another 20 years to actually, you know, get into that activity. So I spent my time in the lab. Uh, I went from Hans to the materials lab, and then the flight dynamics lab, and, you know, all those other different labs. Eventually, I became the tech director of the entire place, the Air Force uh, uh, Research Lab, which is the, uh, the Air Force's arm for all of the, it's very much like the NASA centers. So, so you were in charge of all 10 research centers at yep. the Air Force? Wow, yep. that's fantastic, yeah. Roughly at about 1984, 83, 84. So it, it wasn't that long. It was roughly 20 years after I became, you know, a military lieutenant. And by then I was a senior executive. And so I ran the, the base, uh, the, I'm sorry, the laboratory, which had those 10 directors, just like, you know, Charlie. And, you know, it was everything under the sun, information systems, health systems, everything. But all of a sudden, out of the blue, uh, I was asked uh, by the Air Force uh, to be the, the director of what became the National Aerospace Plane Program. We call it NASP, N-A-S-P program. And uh, actually, it was a perfect title. It's just too long to say. So we used to say NASP all the time, uh, National Aerospace Plane. And it was a wonderful program. Uh, and it was the best time of my life. But it really was because of another president, President Ronald Reagan, in uh, 1992 or so, gave his speech. I'm sorry, 1988, uh, gave his speech to the Congress. And he says, I want to build a hypersonic airplane that will go around the world in one hour. I'm going to call it the Orient Express. But by the way, it'll go all the way into space and we'll be able to put all kinds of satellites in there very cheaply. It'll take off from a runway. Uh, and I think we got the technology to do it. That was that was President Ronald Reagan. And uh, he, he came to the Air Force and he says, I need somebody to do this. A, a former general said to me, yeah, how about you, Bart? Would you be willing to do it? And I oh, Gosh, this is my dream come true 20 years after, you know, I joined the Air Force. And so I volunteered 
immediately, and I got to be uh, the actual. I worked for uh, George H. W. Bush, who had uh, succeeded uh, Ronald Reagan, of course, within a half a year of that speech to to the Congress, and because it was a joint program uh, with uh, NASA, DARPA, the Navy all of the companies in America, and pretty much all of the universities in America, I got to report to the vice president of the United States because he was the only guy short of the president that actually had a, had a power over all of those people. And we, when and the Air Force argued, there was quail that said, okay, here's how we're gonna do it. <laughs> and not, not to mention the national labs. Oh. And, and back then we had dozens and dozens of prime contractors, aerospace contractors, and hundreds of subcontractors and uh, the academia industry, the five government agencies. It was an amazing program and it was classified. Yep, yep. Right, it was classified. <laughs> And uh, so uh, the, the, there was all kinds of interesting things that happened at the beginning, Charlie. So yes, it was classified. And, and honestly, I, I, I told Quayle and I told uh, the other guy that was very instrumental was one of the original, I, I'll call him an astronaut, Scotty Crossfield. Scott Crossfield was extremely uh, influential. He was the one that had told Reagan, we could do this. Now, when I got the program, I went, oh my gosh, can we really do this? I mean, go from Mach one, you know, at Chuck Ager to Mach 25, which was the goal of the program, I said, I, I know we can do this, but I need everybody in the country to help. That, that was heck, a heck of a request to the vice president. And he says, you got it. Uh, go ahead and do it. We'll back you. And really, as Charlie said, you said, the national labs, the NASA labs, the Air Force, the Navy, I mean, anyone that you could think of, all of the, uh, the big computer you know, guys in the country, all of the aerospace companies uh, in those days, Lockheed Martin, uh, Boeing, uh, McDonnell Douglas, uh, which was before Boeing, everybody. At one time, honest goodness, we had 5,000 people, 5,000 people working on the National Aerospace Program. And I remember Admiral Truly, who had taken over NASA at one time, he said, Bart, are you kidding me? Are you just sort of, you know, exactly. I said, do you want to hear the names of these people? He says, yeah, I want to see them. So I amassed this massive list of 5,000 people and sent it to Admiral Truly, because that one was when NASA was was in a hiatus because of the very accident you talked about, you know, and or the, the one that preceded it. So uh, I says, here they are. And he wrote me back and says, well, you were right. There are 5,000 people on this program. Uh, pretty much every smart uh, aerospace engineer in the country. Now, now, the way I remember it, because I was I was fairly young, I was working for about 10, 12 years at NASA. And then this amazing program, we knew some people at NASA were working on it. Some of the early folks at NASA that were working on it. One of them was uh, a good friend that passed away, Bob Jackson, that yes. was one of the lead structures people on that. But as I remembered, it was Tony DuPont and yep. Bob Williams at DARPA. Tony DuPont had sold this idea, yep. even though it was very crude analysis. He sold this idea and somehow it started building up steam and then NASA got involved. And then we had to figure out how the heck are we going to make this happen? Because there was a lot we needed to, there was a lot we needed to discover in order to get to orbit with this vehicle. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it was. And, you know, so it was a huge challenge. You know, you, you talk about a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. That was one, let me tell you. And uh, I remember the vice president looking at me, says, you really think you could do this? And I said, well, we got everybody in the country working on it. If we can't do it, who can? And it really was, uh, I think, a wonderful idea. It was just at the time that President Reagan and then George H.W. Bush realized that we really had to do something spectacular to really scare, scare the Russians. And it was part of the Star Wars program that President Reagan had initiated. And to this day, uh, even though we didn't actually build the airplane, I feel tremendously uh, happy that we actually did contribute to that big technology capability. And if you remember, in 1990, 91, the Soviet Union, you know, collapsed. And I think one aspect of that was because they were so amazed by what we were taking on. I think they thought, my gosh, there's no way to keep up with these guys. They, they were fighting to keep up. And you mentioned big, hairy, audacious goal. And that came from another, another great, great book on um, some of the, you know, built to last organizations that maintain their core ideology over 50 to 100 years and 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 how do they do this and what what i you know you and i both love a lot of the same things you're very much involved in creativity and one of the first things you talk about and first of all i want to i want to do a shout out to your book the sky is not the limit uh, breakthrough leadership. And it's not just about leadership, but this is one of the best books that I have ever read on how do you manage these audacious goals, these big, hairy, audacious goals, what I call these epic challenges, and how do you maintain the teams and motivate teams and create the right teams to help solve some of these challenges. And your book is filled with amazing ideas that I don't know if you had them all when you started the program, but you used a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, the program was very innovative, not only because of the, te the technology, but a lot of the business aspects of the partnerships you built, the consortium that you built, how you got all these pro all these industries to work together to collaborate in a uh in a competitive collaboration is what you call it, competitive collaboration or cooperation, I think you you, right. you you coined all these great terms. Yes, right. Well, you know, it was uh, it, it was a challenge because uh, all of the companies that I can mention, you, you know, you all know, were competitive in those days. I mean, they were fighting for government contracts, NASA contracts. So I, I had this big meeting, honest to goodness, of the leaders of all of the big companies, the Lockheed Skunk Works, uh, the, uh, the Martin and Lockheed uh, um, Lodger Corporation, Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, Rockton. I, I had them all in one big room and I set it up as a circle. Uh, and uh, the circle uh, was an idea that I had gotten from King Arthur's, King Arthur's in the round table, because these these were warriors. You know, they, they might have been civilians running these big companies, but they felt in their heart they were defending America and those big companies would do it. And I remember they all sat down at a round table and they kind of looked at me like, what's going on here, Mark? And I said, look, yeah, I know you're competitive, but I want you to put the swords down for a while and let's talk as if 
we would work together. Now, later on, when we're going to build a thousand of these things, you can be competitive. You can, you know, bid on the contract there. But until we do the R&D, let's be cooperative. And they were. It, it was really amazing. Part of it, of course, was because we were doing this for the nation, the president of the United States, you know, and all of the leaders of NASA and the Air Force. So there was a strong motivation. And there was also a strong motivation at that time because the Russians, you know, were, were really, you know, I don't know if they were building an aerospace plane or not, I doubt it, but they were competitive, you know, and I, and I think all of these companies did not want to let that happen. So in a way, uh, they, they agreed to the collaborative uh, activity. Wonderful. And, and Bart, you talk about it in the book because it took a lot of work on your part to make that happen. I think I read in the book that you met with them almost once a month with every leader of every one of those major companies. To, to, to keep the keep the motivation strong, keep keep them talking to one another. And there were, as, as we all know, with so many different government agencies and fighting to get support for funding, every every fiscal year is another another battle that you have to go through to keep it all focused. Um, and, and you did that. You, you were a very, very inspirational leader, a very motivational leader. And you kept the team together and you came up with this amazing partnership. I remember the companies had to kick in money. I think yep. Lockheed was one of the few that stopped basically contributing their R&D to the program. But everyone was kicking their fair share into the program. And people don't believe this of me, but I remember even the NASA centers, if we had an idea, we would go and compete with every one of the company's ideas, and they would have a board of people that you selected that you would, they would go and evaluate all their ideas, heads up, like whether we, I know we were in competition with the wing leading edge concept with Boeing, for instance. And so we were competing, the government agencies were competing with funds with the companies to get the funding to do some of these technology programs, these research programs. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right, Charlie. Uh, for a, like a three-year period, I met once a month, once a month, with the leaders of NASA. I mean, the, the head of NASA, the head of the Air Force's R&D, all of the vice presidents or presidents of those companies. And you know what it really was like? We didn't talk technical. You know, we can't give a status of the program, but it was a motivational activity. We, uh, yeah. we didn't tables anymore. We're all kind of chums. And we would meet, we would go to Monterey uh, once every six months. We bring all 5,000 people there. And and then I, you know, most of my job, I got to tell you, Charlie, I, I, I feel like sometimes I'm much more of a speaker than a scientist. And so I used to get up there and rah, rah, the whole thing. Come on, guys. You know, because there, there were two things that were against us. One was the turn to competitiveness. And, and I had to stop that at the nip it in the bud if it happened. And they had to put in as much money as we were putting in. So it was a contribution thing, too. But the other thing was that it was such a tough goal that I think unless you were stout of heart, you know, uh, just like you were to be an astronaut, to, to go up there, it would be easy to convince yourself, oh, I don't think we're going to do this thing, you know, and, and let's pull out. So I used to give them the rah-rah speech and, you know, tell them what, how, what was at stake, tell them the Russians were at stake and all of that. And uh, yeah. yeah. The only thing I'm going to fault you for, Bart, of those two meetings, we had two meetings every year. The one we had in the winter time, you chose to have in Dayton, Ohio, instead of Monterey. And I could never understand that, Bart. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, you know, uh, somebody told me one time, you can speak positive, you can be the good guy, but every once in a while, you've got to give them something negative. To it is a lousy place in the winter, let me tell you. Oh, it's, it's, it's a tough place. But I want to commend you because one of the things that made that program so, so successful, I mean, uh, was the fact that you developed your own publication system because the reports were all ITAR restricted, had to only be a, a, a U.S. citizens that had to have a need to know that would actually access the papers. And both of those meetings were like big conferences and they were held and they were totally closed door in, in, in confidential settings where we could share information, which was vital. It was absolutely vital because, as you well know, sharing um, information and educating our workforce about these uh, very critical classified technologies and programs is, is difficult to do. And so that whole reporting system was phenomenal. We had these great meetings where we exchanged ideas. And uh, boy, it was... Uh, it oh, yeah. Something. Yeah. And we were walking a thin line. Obviously, we were, it was a national program. A lot of our allies want to be part of it. I mean, naturally, it was such a cool program. We had to walk that line very, very carefully. We had to make sure that uh, people who were clearly our foes, like the Russians and the Chinese, we would never get a, a hold of it. And I also had to try to motivate the students of that time, okay, the people that were still in college. And uh, to this day, Charlie, when I go to an airport, it's almost inevitable that some guy, now I'm 82 years old, but some guy who might be like 60 years old comes up to me and he said, you know, I was in that NAS program with you. Do you remember me? And of course I go, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, by the way, what was your name? But uh, you know, oh yeah. And, and and they say, you know, it changed my life. It changed my my uh, focus. It changed my uh, college. A lot of them uh, tried to get into technical schools. It, it was kind of like the first STEM activity, if, if you truly want to think of it. And, you know, I'm yeah. involved in STEM right now, just like you are. So even if the program technically doesn't accomplish every one of the technical goals, we need something like that in America right now. We, we truly do. I just ran a, a, an eight-week STEM program, and a lot of the people said to me, I'm not going into aerospace engineering or mechanical engineering because, you know, we've done everything. We have all these planes. I'm going into computer science, and I'm, I'm going to make a lot of money on Wall Street. And I go, hey, come on. You know, that's fine. I'm not against making money, but come on. The nation needs, you know, aeronautical engineers, astronautical engineers, uh, and, and please don't step away. And these are 16-year-old kids. And honestly, this summer, two of them switched their major from computer science to aeronautical engineering uh, at the University of Dayton. So, you know, such big STEM people and we've done it all of our lives and we try everything NAS was a wonderful program that's why I'm so interested in creating uh, with you and, and you know with with other people Mark Lewis the potential of a wowsy program you know I don't know what else be hag right that could really that's, get people that that's what I was just going to say one of those young guys because I'm 71 coming up on 72 here in May so uh but Mark Lewis is another decade yeah. behind behind me he's one of those 60 year old guys that's out there at uh, uh purdue advanced research institute the ceo and um and it definitely had an effect on him because he was one of those youngsters that started into that program 
Yeah, it was at MIT at the time. And I remember I had to go to every university, uh, you know, that was strong in aero and astro and give speeches. We even built out of cardboard a replica of what the plane would be. And then we would wood in cardboard. We moved it to all the universities. And when those kids, you know, in those universities saw, we, we of course, they knew it wasn't a real plane. But the airspace plane was a very unique design. It's a very cool design. And if anybody, you know, wants to see it, uh, they can find what it looks like and everyone thought wow that is so cool and i remember in particular at virginia tech and in, in blackburg uh, virginia oh my god we had the biggest event the, the vice president came down there and everybody looked at the plane and they said congratulations on building and i said no no it's just it's just a replica so the students I, built <laughs> and that was the pointy pointy nose version i believe yeah, yeah. right yeah yeah, yeah. Very, but it was and, cool cool yeah <laughs> And what, one of the things you talk about in your book, The Sky is Not the Limit, is really you talk about the challenge. And I do the same thing with, you know, we both started nonprofits. Mine was the Epic Education Foundation. And we I place a lot of emphasis on the challenge and hyping the challenge. And man, that is what drew us to this program, being part of this select group of people that was read in to this amazing challenge, almost impossible. And I really believe that's the secret sauce to get kids excited. And then the other thing you talk about is what you call open focus in your book. You're highly focused on this challenge, but not the solution. You're totally open with the solution and you let the kids, the young, the kids, a 60 year and 70 year old guys use the right side of their brain to yep. uh, to kind of come up with innovative solutions to the problem. Absolutely. And, you know, it's classified, so I can't talk about it in detail. But I got, a, 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 we got an idea for the uh, what they call the low-end engine. Uh, you know, we had to have like five different engines all integrated, all the way from zero to one, Mach 1, one to three ramjets, three to five scramjets, you know, and all that. And I remember being at a school. It was a high school. It was a high school, Charlie. And the kids say, well, I says, we had a problem with that low end. And they go, well, well, what's the problem? And I said, well, we got to collect the oxygen. Anyways, they told the story and I, I wrote it down and I sent it to NASA. <laughs> I sent it to, I think, Langley. And I said, what do you think about this? And these guys came back and said, that's a hell of a good idea. Now the kid didn't have all of the details, okay? That's but yeah, which where we were burning without a turbine to get the plane going, you know, and then with the turbine would kick in, was exactly what we needed, and it came from a student. Unbelievable. That's right. That's right. I remember. I remember reading that, and you know, it's a lot of what uh, my philosophy is with the Epic Education Foundation. You know, we, tr we try to link from graduate school all the way down to elementary school because you get those crazy ideas because the kids don't know what they don't know and they have and they haven't been told that you can't do that and sure enough a lot some of their their ideas will work they'll inspire people up above to think about it and uh, and they become reality i remember unobtainium in order yep. to get to orbit, we didn't have the material that was light enough, strong enough, could take the temperature, the extremes in temperature from minus 450 to, to over 3000 degrees yep. Fahrenheit. And so we were, we had our material scientists working overtime on, on every type of material system and combination of systems, composite systems imaginable. 
Absolutely. You know, and the one that actually came the closest to doing all the things you said, and probably could have, was uh, titanium metal matrix composite. And I think everybody knows about composites today because they're used in all airplanes with composite materials. Pretty, but, you know, make it out of a metal and then put a metal inside and have all that temperature capability. And I think of all of the things that NASA did was to accelerate that materials development, uh, like by a factor of 10. Yeah, yeah. Ended in 1990 because of the change in administration. And that's what stopped the program, really. And the fact that the Russians rolled over. We had a, a, a national capability in the sort of the most advanced material you could think of metal to metal matrix, uh, high temperature. And to this day, it's being used in turbine engines. And, you know, that was in 1990. That, my God. Uh, I remember. I remember when we tested these materials because they were brittle as heck, the titanium oh. alum aluminides, the beryllium's that we use. And I remember testing them and instead of them buckling like typical aluminum steel yeah. type structures, they shattered like glass. <laughs> well, I and I think that's why what you did so wonderfully, and, and I, I thank you for your service, is that you went up after some of the tiles from, you know, one of the previous launch didn't work. And I mean, that was both courageous, but also a, a major contribution to technology, you know, and, and I don't know if they were, they were replaced by some of these metal matrix, but uh, the idea of having tiles on, on the shuttle, you know, that could withstand. You, you want to know something I don't think I've ever told you, Bart, but you know, I, I stopped being a, a researcher 22 years at Langley, and I got called to be an astronaut. And John Young would come in my office. You know, he was great. He would go to a lot of people at the research centers and, and bounce his ideas off on them. I remember he came in my office one day and he said, you know, Charlie, I'm having problems running in this sim with these high energy transatlantic landing aborts, these tall aborts, where the energy is so high, I'm trying to make it to a landing field, and I'm burning off the wings. Is there anything you could do? I went back to the wing leading edge that we designed for NASP, where we yep. put these refractory metal heat pipes inside a carbon carbon. Yep. And me and I called back to my friends at Langley, we came up with a redesign for those sections of the wing leading edge that John was seeing that were overheating. And we came up with a successful design that we felt we could have survived the high energy teleport by going to this, but we couldn't get we couldn't get uh, Johnson Space Center Engineering and the shuttle program office to give us the money to do it. And this was a year before the Columbia accident, Jeez. but it was actually a NASP design because that was the con that was the technology package that we won we beat out boeing for this technology package for the wing leading edge me and david glass and our team at, at langley were, were working on that with people from los alamos national labs yeah yeah well you know i ended up doing my phd uh, thesis my, my my doctoral thesis on using heat pipes in ceramic material uh to to do and i did that in 1975 but it was for a different application was for laser weapons and the mirrors of the lasers were so hot that we had to just oh my god but yeah, I, I did not know you were an old heat pipe guy uh, yeah but it worked and we actually were able to make laser mirrors and you can imagine a mirror that's getting hit by a laser smooth because the heat pipe actually distributes the heat in the back 
And, you know, it's too bad. Sometimes that's what happens in science. If you're in a different focus area, the other guys don't even know. And here I am, part of NAS, but I'm telling them, use heat pipes, you know, uh, for that. And, you know, I used to work with you guys out there because, and, and we used to collaborate a lot because you were doing a lot, of, a lot of work in high temperature structures, actively cooled structures, heat pipe cooled structures. Was it Brent Cullum or Brent? Oh, what was his name? Was one of one of you had several heat pipe guys out there that I used to collaborate with. Yeah, yeah, Oops, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's right. You had a nose cone out there that Boeing had designed for you in heat pipes, and um, yeah, very, very interesting. I did not know you did that. And of course, they were looking at heat pipes in the nuclear field also for a lot of the nucleus. Uh, satellites, propulsion systems, and satellites also. I still think lead pipes are a solution to a lot of temperature problems, and they're in. As a matter of fact, some of the turbine blades, as, as small as they are, have little teeny heat pipes in, inside for so, some of the high-end applications, you know, military turbine engines. And uh, so we did work on, on transition in that technology. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I had a patent with a guy, Bud Peterson, who became the yeah. uh, the president of Georgia Tech yeah. on a metallic high temperature micro heat pipe. Yes, yeah. <laughs> the micro heat pipes. I, I got to tell you one thing, and uh, it's kind of a joke, but uh, one of the big rewards I got from being in the NAS program, I got a call from the head of NASA at the time, and they said, would you like to ride in the SR-71? We own one, and it's at Edwards Air Force Base. And I said, oh, my God, I would love it. But he said, you got to be trained, and you've got to do some work while you're up there. You're not just going to sit in the back seat, you know, twiddle your thumbs. I said, oh, I'll do anything. So, I, you know, I'm like 50 or so years old. I'm not spring, you know, chicken like you were and i said count me in man so we go up in the 71 and it was you know i had to train for six months and uh, six weeks rather in this really uncomfortable environment i mean it was like the old apollo days you know and uh, sure enough we get up to 3.2 and the pilot says okay play with the ramjets so i'm playing with the ramjets and we actually went faster than we were supposed to and he says wait a minute we're going too fast let's slow down i'm not sure the materials can take it when i see uh top gun or anything like that i laugh because you know they Ooh. they that but anyways we came down and the head of the dryden uh center at the time nasa dryden which was right next door to uh you know the air force base there comes out and puts that big water bucket of water on my head because that's what happens when you fight when you do the 71 so i said uh, hey uh, how fast do we go she said, we can't say that you went too fast you you actually moved the ramjet engines and i says well how high did we go? And I, he said, oh, probably 95,000 feet. And I said, does that make me a half astronaut? Like you guys go up to two. He says, you're a half astronaut. And I go. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's an amazing story. What, what a cool, what a cool yeah. ride that must have been. Do you remember who the pilot was? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, Steve Ishmael. Was it yeah. Steve Ishmael? I call him Moses. Yeah. Ishmael. Steve Ishmael. Yeah, yeah. I remember right. Steve. He was on the NAST program. Yeah. And so he says to me, Bart, you know, if, if something goes wrong with the engines, we're just going to crash and die. So don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> yeah, Ishmael. Steve Ishmael. You're right. Oh, he was great. I remember. He was a big, big time runner, too. He was a used to do marathons and stuff. He'll 
dates. He had date, a date farm in the, in the desert. And, and he and all of us, so there were a lot of astronauts, you know, still hanging there at, uh, at F, Edwards Air Force Base. Oh, yeah. Talk with them. And uh, so it wasn't really just a, a fun flight. It was really to get some research done on the on the ramjets a little bit more. And I think I opened them up a little bit too much by the state because they had to be controlled from the, you know, from the, the pilot's point of view. So, so Bart, there are an amazing stories in the, in this in this little book you have, and yep. amazing uh, amazing ideas, right, and innovative ideas in management and leadership, and, and and it's a great book. If if anyone hasn't gotten it, the sky is not the limit. Breaks it's on Amazon. Lead. It's on it's Amazon. On, it's on Amazon. Yeah, you yeah. also have two other books, Collaborative Innovation, which I know you love to do, oh, yeah. and which you started right after you retired from Right Hat. You yep. you got together with five or so senior folks, and you said, you know what, we need to keep Wright Patterson Air Force Base, the Air Force, as innovative as possible. And I wish NASA had this had people like you that did stuff like that. We do have some, uh, the National Institute for Astronautics, NIA, outside the gate, mostly doing academic stuff. But you're doing a lot of really cool, innovative things in the Wright Brothers Institute in STEM. And yeah. I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about that also. Yeah, sure. Well, that book, Collaborative Innovation, is almost a, a history of the Wright Brothers Institute because starting in uh, 19, I'm sorry, 2000, uh, we started building it, and, and there it is. Yeah, it's also available on on uh, uh, on Amazon, uh, and it's a history of at least uh, 50 collaborative innovation projects that we did over the 20-year period using all kinds of interesting techniques. You know, I talked about the round table and King Arthur. I use talking sticks. I do all kinds of stuff to get collaboration. Uh, it sounds kind of trivial, but it isn't. It's getting people's minds to agree. Uh, we've done some wonderful things. Uh, I'm still working, by the way. I'm, I work half-time at the Wright Brothers Institute at 82. We just finished a wonderful program with 30 STEM students. Well, all about collaborative innovation. And you know, the young people are innovative, but it's because they, like you said, you're absolutely right. They don't know what they can't do. So they just try it. And, you know, and we, we have to make sure that they do, you know, take advantage of the science that we now know and not do silly things. But I believe the young people are more collaborative and more innovative than some of the people that have been ingrained already. And, you know, they're, they're trying to protect their money. So Red Brothers Institute does have a strong STEM program, collaboration, tech transfer, tech transition. I just love it. So I just keep working and it's enough of money. It's it's just more fun. That's what led me to you because you've been in some of our programs where we wanted people with very distinct capabilities different from each other to attack a problem. And I remember you were here on heat transfer, I think, because yeah. you the guy that went up in the shuttle with the shuttle and tried to understand the heat transfer. Yeah, you, was... yeah, I, I remember. I've I've been there several several times. I've been back to the Wright Brothers Institute for lots of different things. One of them was at retirement parties for some of my buddies out there. Um, but some of them were working with the students, and I think Bob Williams or Rob Williams Rob, had yeah. a program out there. We collaborated when I was uh, working at NYU for a little bit. We yep. collaborate, collaborated with our friends at the Wright Brothers Institute. 
And I forgot the name of the STEM program that, that he called it. I forgot the name of it. Yeah, I, I don't remember. I'm sure there was. It, yeah, there, there was a name and it was kind of a very, uh, you know, optimistic name, like, you know. I can't, I, I, I just drew a blank. But we had very similar, very similar passions. I, I still I still do work like that. I go to the Cape a couple of times a year. We have uh, we have students in in high schools in the Boston, in the Boston area and in the New Jersey area. And we're spreading to um, to Australia. To, we, we've had students in Finland. And so we're starting to bring kids from around the world in some in some of these collaborations also. But I am. You know, one of the things, one of the things that we talked about with Mark Lewis, Mark, we just had Mark Lewis on several weeks ago, interviewed with Mark Lewis, talking about the plight of where we are in hypersonics right now and what we need to to um, take back the lead from the Chinese in hypersonics. And I know you and I have talked about this. Um, and and I think it's something that maybe we should have a bigger discussion on at some point. But I think idea for a prototype program like you did with NASP is something that we could galvanize the focus of all these different agencies around learning, filling knowledge gaps, developing technology, all towards advancing hypersonics. But I think having having a good, a, a real program is, is one of the keys. You want to talk a little bit about that? I know yeah. you, you have. And there Great work going on, and you know, NASP is thirty years old now. So there's been a lot of uh, advancement in hypersonics. There've been rocket hypersonic rocket work, and and you know, I think we're up to six or seven now. With a lot of the flight testing, Mach six or seven. So it isn't like nothing's happened in the the last fifty years. But honest to goodness, and I, I'm prejudiced because NASP was such a powerful program. I really think it takes it, it will take something like that. You know. Uh, we don't have to even talk about hypersonics. Uh, you and I have lived through President Kennedy saying we got to get to the moon. You and I lived through Ronald Reagan saying we got to beat those Russians. And whenever a national program that that has at the top of the pile a very it doesn't have to be the president, but somebody very very important says let's do this. People connect with that. I, I think in our hearts, I mean, we're both, you know, military NASA people. So we're probably a little more willing, you know, the, to, to do anything under the sun. I have a lot of military people who've lost their lives. I've had, you know, astronauts who have lost their lives because of that kind of burning desire to help. I think that's what we need in, in the hypersonics area, whether it's a, another plane like the airspace plane, whether it's you know, rockets or UAVs, even an unmanned air vehicle with a hypersonic or little ones even. You know, I, I don't want to try to pick a particular focus, but if we had a national program to unite NASA, the Air Force, uh, even the special operations people are doing a lot of work in that area as well. And the companies are, but again, the companies, as you well know, will not put all of their money into something unless there's a national program. I mean, it's a, it's a real uh, it's a real differentiator from just doing great work. I mean, I'm not uh, saying that, uh, Lockheed and Northrop Grumman and, and Boeing aren't doing great work, but the focus, you know, if we could do great work in every area, but unless you actually focus it on, let's have a space program, let's have an aerospace program or a hypersonic program, it, it does, does the acceleration, the commitment, you know, the, the kind of like, I'll do this. I'll I'll work extra hours to do it. Uh, that's what makes it happen. I, and I, and I think we could do it very quickly if we did. And, 
And, you know, just like during the Apollo days, you know, we saw that increase in advanced degrees, that increase in innovation that came back to us financially and economically in the country because we invested in that in that technology. We need something similar to to uh, disrupt our education system and, and accelerate our education system in this country. So kids from the U.S. go for advanced degrees. They get back into doing the hard work that's needed to solve these tough problems. And, um, and, and we graduate them in numbers that we can be as competitive as we need to be. And I know you guys are well aware of that, especially... In, in in the military, how how important this is, and uh, no, I, I completely agree with Mark uh, on his podcast with you that we need a national program. Now, I, I'm not, I don't want to try to dictate you know how to do it. You don't have to do it like NAS, but I think we need a commit first. The commitment is so powerful, and then the collaboration is so powerful. So the, those two C's, you know, commitment and collaboration, are on top of all the good technical stuff that we know. And you know, I spent the summer with 30 16 year old STEM students, and you know, they're trying to figure out what they want to do with their life. Now, the temptation is to try to find an app, make a billion dollars, and go retire on an island. Okay, but honest to goodness, as I talked to every one of them, they said, "Yeah, that would be alright, but we would rather." Do do something that would change the world. I mean, they use that term, climate, yeah. you know, what a change. Yeah, them. absolutely, absolutely, Bart. And, you know, that's why I started the Epic Challenge program. Yep. I got that idea for Epic because I read this book by Jane McGonigal. Reality was broke is broken because my stepson at the time was, was, was struggling in school, but he was very much addicted to video games. And why are kids getting addicted to video games? Because they want to be, we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And it's that you, you say it in the book beautifully. It's that um, not it, it's internally, it's not the external reward. It's the internal reward that you get from doing it. It's that satisfaction, changing the world, doing something that hasn't been done before for the benefit of society. Yeah. And they're very interested in doing that. I mean, they don't point out that the only people that really should be emulated are Wall Street traders or, you know, whatever. They point out they want they want to become people who change things who, who for the good. And my goodness, there's enough problems out there. So I just say pick a problem, whether it's global exactly, warming. Exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, they, they, they love the idea of not using much petroleum or keeping the temperature down, you know, that kind of stuff. And they are willing to go to schools and get a PhD, which is a tough thing to do to, to contribute to that. So, yeah, I, I think our youth is great. But if you don't captivate their imagination, guess what? They go to Wall Street. I mean, what else would they do? Right. Or I, yeah. I'm talking to do that, you know, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on you touched on a lot of the the key topics that you mentioned in the book, intrapreneur on entrepreneurship, right? How do you become innovative inside this bureaucratic organization that's so hierarchical now and so structured that it's almost impossible to be innovative? And you talked about the personal commitment, right? 99% perspiration. Edison tried a lot of a lot of things, and, uh, and and you also talk about breakthrough leadership, and I think I, I really believe you know we had some great leaders, Bart, and and I'm wanna 
I want to tell you, you were one of the, you, you are one of the, the great ones, right? And, and you did everything, everything right. And we need leadership like that to keep, to keep the focus, to keep the motivation, to keep the team intact, because you did keep the team intact, even when we knew the problem was almost impossible and we were making, uh, we were making breakthroughs. And uh, to actually see a badgeless society where people from Rockwell, Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, uh, uh, General Dynamics all work together and collaborate in, out in California was amazing. You know, what was even more amazing because I, I think of you and I as intrapreneurs because we both lived in giant bureaucracy. You you and NASA be in the Air Force. So I, I, I think we don't have to explain much. We just say, well, <laughs> look what we did. You know, that's how to be an entrepreneur. You, you got to fight the bureaucracy because it will snuff you out. It's not that they're bad people. It's just that they, you know, they count beans. And, and, and you know, that's all they care about is how many beans. So you and I fought those things. And I, I think we- remember- I remember you had a general. I, I remember checking in, you know, getting my getting our badges, getting into security and getting onto right pat. And you had a general. And every now and then we'd sit in his office. And I don't remember what that general's name was. All I remember he had this pretty large size cow. Yeah. At you in his office. And I don't know if that was a passion of his or whatever it was. But but you talk you talk about you know a kid from kid from New York City. I'm out there in Dayton, Ohio, and I'm out there being being lectured by by this general. And I remember one of the one of the crazy um, a, a very creative engineers, Bob Jackson, was one of the was the leader at, at NASA Langley on the NASA program very early on. But I remember he had his set ways about he how he thought what technology needed to be developed. And I think the general canceled, canceled one of these programs. And I remember Bob Jackson said, well, who was the moron that did that? And the general said, I was. And the next thing you know, Bob was off the program. And I think you had a similar story to one of the the Air Force guys. And the Navy guy, all of a sudden I kept losing people, you know. to human be in my life, you know, but if, you know, there were, there were times when you had to say, look, you're <laughs> well, the guy with the cow had an interest. I don't know if he was a cow herder or whatever, but he said, you know, the best way to get collaboration, put three bulls in the room, not two of them, two of them, they're just bashy set it to death. But when you put the third bull in the room, it, it sort of forces some sort of a collaboration because <laughs> no one knows that and i always remember that story it was kind of like an old you know farm story but the more people you put in the room uh in a sense the harder it is because you know they're going to go at each other but in a way collaboration is often better when there's not just two people it's too easy to you know to kind of get competitive and you know i i also think of entrepreneurship that way too that we weave and we wove in nasa you and in the air force me those collaborative groups that we could turn to without being wiped out and you know i'm sure i know you struggle with some of the nasa management so was that so did i you know we had to pretty much put our jobs on the line every time we did it but and that's what it takes but you don't do that unless there's a big thing behind it a BHAG, you know something that yeah. you feel 
hey, if I get fired or if I get demoted or if I don't go on that mission, you know, I, it's worth it because I really believe this is the right thing to do. And, I, and, and that's what we both did in very different ways, you know, but together. And, and you're a little bit of a different leader, right? You're a little bit more, your, your environment, right? And, and, and uh, your focus, open focus and your environment is a little bit different, a little bit more psychologically safe. You allowed, allowed your team to fail and that was perfect perfectly okay, because that's how we did it in research. And Wright, Pat, and Langley both had that that's, that research culture. You you guys and, and, and people at, at NASA helped develop composite materials. You had yep. the size, the Paganos, the Halpins at, at, the, at the research labs when composites were first being looked at for, uh, for aerospace materials. And... Um, and what what a great time! We need more times like that, Bart. It's the greatest time of my life. I'm sure your your flights were the greatest time of your life. But I I, I just loved it because uh, you, we were in the zone. You know, they they talked to a lot of people about being in the flow. You know, being being a, a really. Yes. Boeing. And, uh, you know, I didn't know all 5,000 people, and I'm sure you didn't know everybody at Johnson either. But, you know, when when a lot of them would be in the flow with you, and yeah, we're in this thing, we're going for it. It happens, of course, in the military when, you know, you have to take the hill or whatever. But in the civilian world where, you know, there's not I really think there's an impending danger. I truly do in the hypersonic area. I think you do too. Mark does too. I mean, we that's a, pro, a technology that's going to take a little while. If we started with a national program now, it may be five years, you know, before we actually get it. Five years is a long time, particularly when you look at the Chinese research. Yes, school. yes, yes. Yep. Yeah, we have the whole infrastructure and we have the education system that, that we have to catch. Uh, we have to catch up. On one of the other things you did that that was phenomenal was always keeping the people that were down and in working on these systems, subsystems, these components tied into the big picture. I remember you would start off the meeting and you have the people talk about, you know, whether or not we're closing, getting to orbit, and what were some of the challenges, giving everybody the lay of the land. That's how you would start off each conference. And then we would go off into our individual sections. And, and and start working and um you know we need we need leaders like that Bart. we well, really do that is a I, I wish more people would use that technique instead of fighting about the minutiae i mean I, I don't want to get into politics now but you know this country is great we've got to band together in every possible way but i think a lot of people focus on li this little nit thing versus that little th and all you do is waste time and waste energy i mean I, I don't want to declare a national emergency but i think something i mean neither reagan nor Kennedy really declared a national emergency. They just said, we got to do this, folks. And, and we did it. And I, I wish to heck the polit politicians. I, I wish you would run for president, Charlie. But uh, if you <laughs> do that, I think we need somebody who, who brings the country together. Hypersonics would be a wonderful thing. There's probably five or six other things, obviously, as opposed to just saying you're wrong and I'm wrong and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It just doesn't make any sense. When we really had to face formidable enemies like the Russians in, in the in the 90s, and now the, and I think we ignore the Chinese, for goodness sakes, you know, not me and you, but, you know, other people, yeah. we got to move, man. It's you don't want to wait till the end. I mean, hypersonics. The one thing I'm afraid of about hypersonics, if we don't win this battle, it is a capability that could wipe out 
any country instantly because after all everything's moving at the at the, you know 25 times the speed of, of sound i mean that is fast so just think of a, of a nuclear system launch from any place getting to new york city in a half an hour just think of that okay yeah. I mean, makes that sense. was that was what really shocked me when i heard mark in the last podcast talk about all the war game scenarios that that he's seen if our adversaries have hypersonic weapons and we don't, we lose every scenario. If they have more in their magazine than we have uh, more, more weapons, we lose. And, and so, yeah, I, I think the world is ready for a, a real challenge. And, and I'm hoping that we have enough people in high places that recognize how important it is because it's going to take a collaboration. We got to cobble together all the different industries, government agencies, national labs, and all the expertise we have around the country in order to make the magic happen and in order to mentor the multitudes of young minds that we're going to need to help us solve these problems. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I, you know, I, I wish I were 50 again. And I wish I, <laughs> I'd be wrecked. As long as I'm hanging in there, you know, I will, I will help you and Mark and anybody to get this baby going. And, I, and I'm the same way. And I have to say, you know, you were talking about you climbing into that SR-71 at 50 something years old. Do you yep. know how I was when I first, my one and only flight to space? No. No, I don't. I was I was 53. And I think that's my only claim. My claim to fame is that I could very well be the oldest NASA rookie astronaut to fly in space. Good for you, then. That's wonderful. I didn't know that. I, you know, I knew you were, you know, you had spent a bunch of time in NASA, but I didn't realize you were 50. But, you know, (laughs) there's. 50, where you think, okay, let me go for this baby, you know, and I, I think we need 50-year-olds as well as the 20-year-olds too. You know? Yeah, I, I think we, we have our place and we could definitely help guide some of these young kids because we have, they're, they're amazing. And I know you know this because that's where we get, that's what keeps us young. We keep working oh. with these amazing, amazing kids. And um well, listen, I've kept you up for a long time here. We've had a lot to chat about. You have three amazing books, The Sky is Not the Limit, Collaborative Innovation, and you just had a new book that came out, and I didn't get a chance to read it yet. I'm going to try to see it. It's called Godlight, Godlight Possibilities from the Intersections of Science and Spirituality. And I'm looking forward to reading this on my vacation. And when I come back, we'll hopefully we'll have you back and maybe we'll get a couple other old timers together. Maybe we'll shake up the, the system a lot and maybe we can help uh, get ourselves back on track with hypersonic. I hope so. I hope so. Charlie, you've done such a great job. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast with Charlie Camarda part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.